This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. So we know that ODA, right, Official Development Assistance, well, it's not really its heyday now, is it? I think we've reached peak ODA, frankly, and the current geopolitical landscape really isn't conducive to any increases in official development assistance. And then we talk about clamping down on tax havens, raising, mobilizing domestic resource, resources. <clears throat> and of course, you know, there is progress being made on that, but really sort of progress. We still have a long way to go. Uh, new donors are emerging on the landscape. We know who they are. They, have, uh, they are spending money in developing countries and at home as well. But are their objectives, are their goals aligned with Agenda 2030? Is that happening? We have philanthropy, uh, and we know that that is a big, big element now, but that also, also has its limits. And then, of course, there is the private sector And there, of course, there are many opportunities, but also many challenges. And we at Friends of Europe have brought out this publication, which I hope you've all picked up, which is about uh, public-private partnerships. And that tells you how much can be done, is being done, but also some of the, let's say, uh, cons of this relationship. So what are we going to do? We have to find new, innovative ways of getting that financial firepower to, uh, to make this thing happen, which is, of course, a very important challenge for all of us. So as I said, collective brainstorm to kickstart our thinking uh, is Richard Armour from the European Investment Bank. Many, many years of experience of working in Africa and really grateful to have Richard here. Also with us, Lubna Shaban, She's a co-director of Child and Youth Finance International. Uh, it's been ranked as 32 in NGO Advisors' top 500 NGOs in the world in 2018. Lubna, thank you very much for coming here. We also have Kai Parplis. He's from the European Commission, DEFCO. We all know what DEFCO does. Thank you very much for being here as well, Kai. Thomas Forsch from GIZ, the German Development Agency, working also very, very strongly on financial flows uh, from the developing country perspective of often as well. And last but not least, really happy to have with us also Beatrice Delprendage. Say it again. Oh, okay. Uh, Cois Invest, which is, of course, a private equity firm based here in Brussels. So let's kick start. The rules of the game, I think you all know. Uh, I'm going to ask them a few questions and then open the floor to comments and questions from you. As long as they're brief, we can do this uh, in within an hour and our 15 minutes. So let's kick off with you, Richard. Let's look at the broader picture, the bigger picture. When you look at what's happening in terms of financial flows for development, are you optimistic? Do you see changes happening or do you think we're still stuck in a kind of a warp? Thank you very much, uh, Shada. Yeah. Well, actually, I think we're at a very, very interesting moment for development finance right now. We have the rise of Chinese intervention, mm -hmm. which we've seen over the last few years in, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, the, the Silk Road Initiative. We also have a U.S. administration that doesn't necessarily see a role for public intervention there to help in the leverage of private sector mobilization. Also, very, very importantly, I think we've got partner countries telling us very, very clearly the challenges that they themselves see coming over the coming de decades. And I want to talk very quickly about one of those things, which is a really interesting report from NEPAD that has just come out in the last week or so, when they talk about what are the big continental transformations that are coming to Africa and what does that mean. Firstly, they talk about demographics. So for Africa, we see a, a doubling of the, the population in the coming decades. 
but very, very importantly, focused in urban areas. We're seeing a massive rise in the middle class. This is a huge explosion. Over a billion people in Africa will be in the middle class by 2060. We see technology having a very big change to, to everybody. This is both mobile phones, internet, but it's also, also importantly, a massive decline, steep decline in the cost of renewable energy. And how do we pass on the benefits of those declines to the African taxpayer? Fourth big point is climate change. And many of the countries that we're dealing with will be disproportionately hit by the effects of, those, uh, of, of climate change. But what does that mean then for us? Well, firstly, I think actually it's a clear opportunity for us as, as, as Europeans to take on a leadership role in these areas. And second, and this is, I think, the good setup for the rest of the session, it's incumbent on us as both policymakers and developmental financiers to show that we can react to the needs of both the private sector but also of our partner countries. So how are you doing that? What are, what are the new ideas that you're coming up with? What's the creativity uh, happening there? Well, I could, I'll, two or three examples to, to kick us off. Firstly is sustainability awareness bonds. So these are bonds that are issued by big institutions that, where the money raised will be used for specific projects for a particular SDG theme. So 11 years ago, green bonds as, a, as, a, as an idea didn't exist. Now, 150 billion euros, uh, $150 billion a year is being raised for green projects. So we as EIB, as the European Commission, as big institutions, we have to build a new market to help funnel institutional money to sustainable development projects. But this should also be on site. So there's a huge amount of institutional pension fund money in Africa, in Latin America, that is not being used to finance projects on site. So we have to provide support to the local issuers of these types of bonds. So we have to help the banks in, in, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, to also issue these types of bonds to funnel local money to local projects. I think the other thing uh, that we need to do is, is we, we need to listen to the private sector and, 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 and kind of react to what they're telling us. Um, I think we at the EIB, actually in very close collaboration with, with the Commission under the External Investment Plan, is we're looking, for example, at renewable energy. Um, the private sector told us very clearly that the risks for them in renewable energy in Africa is not construction risk, it's not regulatory risk, it's actually the risk of a non-payment by a state-owned enterprise. So therefore, we should be looking to target products that deal with that risk. So I think, personally think it's a smart, targeted use of public funds that helps leverage private investment. That should be the key. Final point, because I know about time with you, Shada. I know how it works. Um, I think the other important thing here is to make the private sector, make the ecosystem more viable and more resilient to external shocks. So that means strengthening local financial system, strengthening local financial institutions, and ensuring there is sufficient access to finance for everybody. That means, and very, very importantly, making sure women have proper access to finance um, across the world. This is, we, are, we are laying on the, leaving off the table huge amounts of wealth and knowledge from female entrepreneurs that isn't backed. And my very final point is the regulatory regime in countries. The World Bank actually right now are doing an excellent exercise looking at the regulatory systems of a number of African and Asian countries with a view to unlocking private sector investment in circular economy, mm -hmm. recycling, and clean ocean projects. 
this is a topic that is affecting all of us. So the point here is, is, is that kind of work is vital to get, we have to get the basics right, and then the private sector will follow. Right, thank you very much. So a lot of emphasis on local, local governments, local authorities, and access to finance for local entrepreneurs, women. So I was thinking, Thomas, you are focusing also on what's happening in, in the countries themselves, on the ground. What, what do you, yes, please, share the microphone. What, what are your impressions? Wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Sharda, for having us here. And um, Richard and I don't only have a similar haircut, we also have similar opinions, apparently. <laughs> okay. um, indeed. I would like to, to make some general uh, um, observations with respect to, to the investment flows and their influence on SDG financing, and then draw some conclusions for development cooperation based on that. Um, but exactly to the points you just mentioned. Mm. My first observation is if we have a look to capital flows, um, it is actually the fact that only a fraction of investments made in developing countries, the capital comes from developed countries. Meaning, majority of investments in developing countries are financed by domestic or regional capital. If we have a look to Africa, for example, 90% of investments are African investments. Only 10% are really foreign direct investments from outside of Africa. Um, this draws the conclusion for me, for development cooperation, that we should not forget about those regional capital markets, about those regional and domestic capital flows. At the moment, in the debate of blended finance, in my opinion, we are focusing too much on this Western capital. Okay. Observation number two. Um, not all SDGs are bankable, and in my opinion, also not SDGs. All SDGs should be bankable. The OECD did a very interesting survey in 2017. They asked a number of impact investors to which SDGs they are actually contributing. Interestingly, 70-80%, they really came up SDG number one, no poverty, SDG number eight, decent work. Barely anybody is contributing to some SDGs like 14 and 15, uh, life below water or life on land. So there is not a business case at mm -hmm. the moment, it seems, for all SDGs. Mm -hmm. But however, I think also not SDGs should be used for private funding and for private finance. It is politically very sensible when we talk about education, about health, about social security. Should the private sector play a role? It's a political decision to be made by the respective governments. While on the other side, of course, areas like transport infrastructure, electricity, um, uh, such areas are rather, yeah, already mm -hmm. going pretty much at the moment. So my um, lesson or my conclusion for the development cooperation is that the government will always play a major role in financing SDGs, and we should also not forget to support the government in this role. We are talking about tax collection, we are talking about an efficient use of government funds. My third observation, money is available. We are talking about private capital, it is there. Just have a look at the moment at the zero rate interest policies where capital, private capital is at the moment flowing into negative yields in German government bonds or into bitcoins. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So investors are looking for 
uh, funding uh, for financing possibilities. And the number you mentioned before, whether it's 7 or 6.5 trillion, who knows? It's estimates. And the funding gap is at the moment estimated at 2.5 trillion. This sounds huge. But let's put this also into perspective with some other numbers. This is 2.5 trillion. This is a mere 1% of global private wealth in the, in the world. This is 14% uh, of uh, global annual savings. So the SDGs are well within reach uh -huh. of available capital. However, why does the capital not flow into the SDGs or in the investable SDGs? Um, and here the statement is simply the risk-return relationship mm -hmm. is not always adequate or the perceived risk-return uh, is not always adequate. Um, we have here a lot of activities from the development corporation, from the financial corporation. We have a lot of blended finance activities which are redistributing existing risks between the private and the public. And we have a lot of activities from the technical corporation where we really try to create more enabling environments for capital to flow. That is especially legal and regulatory aspects. That is a major hurdle for investors at the moment. And on the other side, to really in, uh, create investable projects. So we are talking about private sector engagement and uh, about pipeline development. Mm -hmm. These are, in my opinion, uh, preconditions, not only for the financial corporation, but also for private capital to really flow right. into development countries. Mm -hmm. My conclusion here is that while we are already doing a lot together as development corporation, financial corporation, technical co corporation, but also between uh, private uh, um, investors and development corporation, we need to do more and we need to do it better. We have uh, some very interesting pilot cases where we are moving forward, but I think we really have to focus more on such partnerships um, to move forward. To give you one example. I think let's, let's just wait for the examples because I think what you've said so far really needs to go on. But thank you very much and focusing also on the pension funds and all the, uh, all the money that is really available but really just lying there in, inert in a sense. Uh, I'll come back to the pilot cases because I really do want to know. But let me turn to Lubna and the points made so far by uh, Thomas and, and uh, Richard are really to do with so many different sort of elements, strands that have to be woven together, right, to get how does that coordination work and what is your, your, your organization doing in that, in that area? Thank you. Um, so I, I hope to sort of provide a, a, a different perspective. Um, from, from our side, what we see is, I mean, all these, the SDGs, what they're trying to tackle really, really big, complex solutions, right? And so what you're going to need is also a lot of different answers. So while market-based solutions are one way, definitely, they do have their limitations, right? We talked about the fact that not everything is bankable. Um, and they do tend to, um, the way I see it, is focus a lot more on the micro. But let's, let's, say, let's take the example of what we're trying to do, which is to support youth entrepreneurship, right, with the ultimate aim of uh, creating employment. Now, there's 70 million unemployed youth. That's huge. And we, we talked already. And these are, just, these are the ones that we know of. I mean, the, the data on that is not even that, you know. Um, I mean, for example, uh, underemployed youth are not, consider, are not counted in that. Um, so we talked already that the SDGs will require so much money. Now, if you want to support 
let's say one, uh, so what we've seen is what uh, a single young entrepreneur, successful one, will employ 10 others, right? So for the sake of maths, let's, do, let's say it's 50 million. So that means we have to support 5 million entre enterprises, right? Now, if we try and support them one by one, <laughs> there's not enough money in the world for that, okay? Especially considering that they're not all going to succeed. So if you want 5 million, you want 500 million. So we can get that, um, the, the, the actual five million. So what we're saying is, if you really, really want impact, and that is what we all want, we really need to look at the systems level. We need to look at all the different pieces that are working together and bring in all the different players who have that ability to join their efforts to move all those different pieces. And what you need for that is a coordinator. And we believe... And that this coordinator should be what we call an honest broker. This is someone, uh, an, an organization that is independent, that doesn't come with big piles of money and sort of kind of dictate where, how things should be. Okay? Rather, it's, it's, this, uh, it's an institution which uh, brings together all the different players, which creates the collaborations within them, which creates the learnings uh, within them, and engages you know, not just uh, public, private, the media, academia, um, the, the stakeholders themselves, you name it, and there's all different parts to play. And this is what we call collaborative systems change. And actually, it doesn't have to be expensive. In the sense that we, we ourselves, this is what we've been doing for the past seven years. We worked on the issue of financial inclusion and financial education. When we talked about children and money, people were like, Whoa, what is this? <laughs> you know, they'd, have the, they'd close the door, right? This wasn't a very hot topic. Seven years later, by working with these governments, by working with, um, with, with uh, all the different stakeholders, we've seen around 72 countries move towards financial inclusion policies um, uh, and financial education policies. And... It's the sum of all the different parts, okay? And we were never more than 20 people, by the way, in the organization. Um, so, so I would like to sort of really uh, t talk about that if uh, the, the systems change approach, and, and I will sort of be banging on about it for some time because I really, really believe in it. We've seen it work. And if you really want to get those, you know, 5 million enterprises, you need to look at a solution that's much bigger than, than the... And, and you said 72 countries where you've actually succeeded in getting that mindset change, yes, that process yes. change? Yes, and it was through things, for example, like Global Money Week, where we organize uh, a week, uh, where the countries themselves organize activities with the youth and so on, where the countries themselves create those partnerships, um, uh, which is why actually uh, somebody said, oh, CYFI, we've never heard of you. And I said, good. That's our plan. We are supposed to be playing the role of, of the, you know, the coordinator. The actual sort of ownership belongs to everybody. So that's, that's the logic there. Okay, thank you very much for that. Beatrice, uh, there's a lot of buzz. Thank you very much. And I think so, some of what you've said really requires a little bit more probing and, and, and questions, but thank you. Moving on to Beatrice. So Beatrice, there's a lot of buzz around impact investments, social impact investments, blending, etc. What does your equity firm do in terms of getting all these different resources together and mobilizing them? Thank you. Um, it's an honor to be, uh, to be here because, indeed, we, we do work on um, rather, um, so far, smaller um, instruments, but that um, hopefully get um, real impact um, uh, generation. Um, in the world of impact investment, you have the classical solutions, um, which involve um, you know, listed SDG funds, um, green bonds, um, private equity impact funds. Um, but as um, Thomas was very well saying, those all address... Um, the investable solutions. Um, there is, um, and that, there is a risk that if we focus 
too much on that. I mean, we'll never focus too much. We need to bring, bring capital, big capital, to solve those big issues. Um, but obviously, there are a lot of issues that are not, as you were saying, investable yet. Um, they're not investable because um, often we are not putting um, a value on the impact that's generated by NGOs um, or very um, starting um, social businesses. Um, Once when, when you start realizing and accepting to open your eyes and, and realize that uh, an, an underground NGO is actually delivering um, a socio-economic um, um, service that, if you were in a developed country, might be provided by the state, um, once you can put a value on that, what we call an outcome, so the result, the social result, the person finding a job, uh, the child um, staying in school longer, um, etc., um, you, you, you can monetize that, and that's the space we are, the other space we are working on, apart from the classical private equity um, funds, it's what you call um, blended finance instrument, and in particular, impact bonds, which hopefully at some stage will become um, what we call, in our jargon, um, outcome funds. Um, and those instruments, I mean, um, in, in the developed world, they're called social impact bonds. In, in other contexts, they're called development or humanitarian impact bonds. Um, they are um, actually quite a good mix of the uh, various representations um, here. Um, they're a way to bring private capital, either investment money or private philanthropy capital, together with public money, and that can be governments, it can be multilaterals, and it can be also investment money or it can be donor money. Um, you bring them all around the same um, instrument, um, leveraging the strength of each of them. I mean, that's, that's extremely important. I mean, collaboration is fine, but obviously we'll get the results we need if we collaborate in an efficient way, i.e. if we, each of us focus on our areas of strengths and also of what we actually want to do. Can we you give an example, Beatrice? Um, it's, um, I mean, I, I can, I'll, I'll work on, I, I, I don't, yeah, um, yes, I will. I mean, the, the very visible one um, was the humanitarian impact bond we did for um, the ICRC that was launched um, in um, um, August um, 2017. Um, I was going to focus on the challenge, but I had rather focus <laughs> on it. Um, so there um, you have two um, Inst large institutions, actually, it's really interesting because you can see that institutional money, some institutional money, is starting to accept to look at smaller instruments. And from their perspective, that's quite a big step because it means spending a lot of time for something that for them is minute. Um, so Munich Re, which is a very large uh, reinsurer, um, to invest only 10 million because for them that's a drop, right? accepted to dedicate a full team to analyze and do a full due diligence on this impact bond. Same with Lombardier, the Swiss private bank. And those two institutional investors um, pre-agreed to commit um, funding for four to five years to ICRC rehabilitation centers in post-conflict zones in Africa. Um, those institutions will be reimbursed at the end of the period or not, they could actually lose up to 40% of their capital okay. by foreign governments 
um, mostly um, European, depending on the actual results of the program. So it's not about the profits of the asset, or it's not about the profits of the business that you've invested in, but it's about the impact on the ground and putting a monetary value on that. Okay, thank you very much. So doing good not just thinking of profit in exactly. this case, but it's doing in some good, cases it's both. Also, it's, it's also acknowledging, because um, I come from the investment banking and uh, you know, hard capital equity markets, and I get sometimes very annoyed when people say, well, we can't find enough investment opportunities. And then I say, okay, but mm. if we all NGOs, they're done, they're over. No, they're not over. We desperately need them to address some of the deep-down problems. And by the way, if we acknowledge the real value created and generated by some of those NGOs and non-profits right. and others, then suddenly we have a different perspective That's of things. Right. Thank you very much, Beatrice. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn to Kai with a question, but before I do that, can I ask all of you to sort of start thinking now about the questions and comments you want to make, brief, but to the point, but I really think we can, we've already had some very good insights, and I think we have ample opportunity to actually get this discussion into some recommendations and ideas. So, Kai, uh, traditional commission thinking, mindsets about how to work in developing countries, what the SDGs are all about, are some of these ideas, these insights being taken into account? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, at least in my shop of uh, the, the DG DEFCO, for sure, uh, I think we're all uh, a panel here that agrees very much with uh, and, and thinks in the same direction. And actually, Beatrice, I think we, we laid the foundations for a very good partnership <laughs> just over there in the, uh, in the speaker's corner. Um, so, yes, maybe traditional thinking is a little bit different, but it's been for a combination of defensive factors, you mentioned them, limited availability, uh, availability of public funds, but I believe also for a number of really good um, uh, positive factors, um, the uh, commissions, that is my shop, DG DEFCO, and uh, even my little shop, a guarantee facility that I'm running, that's trying to do a lot of the things that were mentioned here uh, okay. today. Um, so the thinking goes very much in the same direction. Um, the positive um, reasons for doing this, uh, trying to, um, what you mentioned, to uh, try to mobilize more private money in particular to actually work towards the, uh, the SDGs, um, include, uh, for example, the fact that in investment as such is extremely important and has been, has played a central role in those countries uh, that actually have developed. I mean, notably the Asian uh, countries, all of them have run incredibly investment-intensive um, development models. Um, and all of that had, of course, a, a very good impact on growth and on productivity and ultimately, therefore, on, on poverty alleviation. So uh, th there's a very good reason, positive reason, to uh, focus more on, on generating investment and tapping into these um, institutional savings funds that, that actually are pretty desperate to, to, to find investments that uh, yield more than zero um, percent. Um, another important reason I would identify is that... Um, the traditional kind of grant funding that we have been doing um, actually doesn't work for a lot of uh, sectors that are central um, to uh, developing and uh, to developed economies. Uh, I mean, we have uh, our economies rely very much on small enterprises, none of which or very few of which probably have developed because someone landed with a, with a suitcase full of money. Mm. But uh, they have borrowed, they have invested, and uh, they have grown uh, these businesses also, of course, because the, the environment was right here. 
Um, you can make the same argument for a lot of um, renewable energy projects, transportation. There are really many, many projects that are probably better financed uh, via uh, the kind of blended finance and guarantee instruments that we're um, developing uh, right now. Um, but of course it's true that not all projects are bankable and we should also um, be very clear that there are limits uh, to this approach and um, I don't think it will take over even the majority of, uh, of the development funds that, uh, that the Commission... Uh, and not all has. countries are seen Not all countries, uh, no, exactly. I mean, there are clear limits, but we should really utilize the potential. Um, I mentioned the little uh, 1.5 billion euro um, guarantee that, uh, that my unit uh, is running. We're hoping it will be a bigger uh, guarantee under the next EU budget from 2021. Um, so what we have done is something that's very similar to what, um, uh, what Beatrice and uh, Lubna have been doing. Um, really, we've uh, tried to encourage our IFI partners, EIB, uh, but also the, the different European DFIs, EBRD, World Bank, and so on, um, to come up with um, innovative ideas to um, unlock investment, to de-risk investments in places where, uh, by, by addressing specifically the barriers that keep back, uh, that hold back investment. Uh, Richard mentioned renewable energy projects where the non-honoring of, of the off-take agreements where government commits to buy the energy is a key risk. Um, but we've gone through different sectors and uh, actually, well, mostly our partners obviously have come up with, with some extremely innovative ways um, to, to generating more investment. It was not always uh, simply to come to the commission, uh, what they would have done traditionally, yeah. say, please take away all the risk and leave all the returns with, right. my, uh, w yeah. with me. Um, but we've had some really clever ways of us covering second losses, third losses, and so on, uh, investing equity, and so on. So this has been a very uh, exciting experience, actually. Um, and, well, really, Beatrice, what you're trying to do, obviously, it's the, exactly the kind of thing we, we would like to um, go into take more risks going so forward. Be more creative. Um, and really exploit the, the, the gap, um, as Thomas mentioned, between the perceived risk and the actual risk, which very often, in particular when you have people like EIB and African Development Bank involved in a project, the actual risks are a lot lower than, yeah. than what people think uh, by just looking at a country. I mean, when you really look at the actual default rates in a lot of these projects, they're, they're not very high, um, okay. which is why we're actually quite confident that we will lose less money um, on, on, on this guarantee facility that we're, we're deploying right now. Um, just perhaps with an outlook, I mean, we, we're looking right now at more traditional sectors uh, for, for these kind of private sector and PPP uh, instruments, mm -hmm. renewable energy, SMEs, municipal services. Um, we're trying to do something uh, in agriculture as well and in digital sectors. Um, I mean, these are sectors where it's relatively easy to identify projects right. that, uh, that have the potential to be, to be really pushed on by a guarantee. But um, really the next frontier where we would like to look at in, in, from 2021 is precisely uh, the sectors that, um, uh, that Beatrice uh, outlined, exactly. uh, social impact investing, uh, human capital, for example. The World Bank um, last November um, came, uh, came out with a, a human capital index, which actually uh, can be a very um, interesting tool to measure 
um, investment that you make in, in these sectors that are a little bit more difficult um, to, uh, to approach with these instruments. Yeah, so it really requires um, it sort of turning your mind around and looking right. at the world and looking at projects from a different point of view, which I think is perhaps the greatest challenge facing the development community. I mean, we're still talking the 20th century kind of talk for some very, very important 21st century issues. So thank you, Kai. I'm going to stop you there. Some very, very interesting insights. Uh, can I have a show of hands now from all of you to see how many of you will be intervening? It's not that if you don't put up your hand now, you will never put up your hand, but just to see who would like to come in uh, for this very interesting discussion. And I have a horrible tendency to ask people to come in if they don't. So... You've been warned. Uh, David, I'm looking at you. But first, David Fouquet. Uwe? Okay, thank you. Just please identify yourselves. There's a young yes, lady David at the back. David Fouquet. Well. I'm not a development specialist, but uh, I'm associated with a development economics uh, master's program at the University of Brussels. Um, I have a just because I attended yesterday a very interesting session that could be a parallel panel to this one organized by DEFCO and the African Development Bank, focusing on the financial sector in Africa. Um, and there's a lot, according to the experts, there's a lot of, there's a reservoir, a pool of capital in Africa, mm. the problem, uh, there's a gap, infrastructure, funding gap that still exists. The big problem they mentioned was distributing it to individuals. I think you talked a little bit about that. Mm. You, Thomas also, um, inclusiveness. Mm. Most people don't have bank accounts. Most people in Africa are in the informal economy. So you're talking about inf big ticket items mostly. Right. But the big problem is how to get it down to the individuals, the young people mm -hmm. and women, other normal working people. Right. Um, but there's a lot of cash. There's a lot uh, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, mm -hmm. insurance companies, um, Thank it's, you. It's there, but it's not enough. Very good, very good point, David. Thank you very much for bringing that. Let's take a comment. Also, uh, we're going to take uh, go back to the panel in a second. Uwe, also please come in, and I'll come to you. Yeah, thanks, Shada. Uh, my name is Uwe Wissenbach. I work for the European External Action Service, but in my sort of private time, I do some research about Chinese financing for for, for projects in Africa. And I'm a little, let's say, confused about the type of projects we're talking about because uh, you haven't been very concrete. So uh, I heard, I mean, I heard Beatrice say uh, something about, you know, in, in, in investing in projects with NGOs. Lubna was talking about mediators uh, like, like your organization for projects. That seems to be sort of grassroots, mm -hmm. small projects. But uh, others are talking, like David here, about huge mega projects, infrastructure projects, and all those billions that are floating around in terms of capital around the globe that are actually there that could be used. Right. Um, so um, the Chinese model, obviously, as you, as you know, I mean, they, they, they give the money and uh, uh, actually they don't give the money, but uh, they provide the money, uh, build the project, and the project gets done usually fairly quickly and you have a visible project. Um, but, but all these issues that mm -hmm. I've 
There's more subtle ways of Yeah, there are more subtle ways of thinking, but yeah. are there any examples yeah. that, that I stopped shows from like, giving some examples so you know, he has a chance now. Having but built a road you. or a railway or an airport or whatever in exactly. that way uh, or thank not. You. Thank you very much. So you will have your moment in the sun. In a second, I'll just take a one more question from the lady at the back. Could you just put up your hand again, please? Oh, please, yeah. Do you mind if I stand? Hi. Hi, um, my name is Charlene Schillingford. I'm the ambassador for the Eastern Caribbean states um, here in Brussels. So I represent five um, countries in the Eastern Caribbean. And we've also been um, very concerned about uh, the new development finance model. So if you don't mind, my, I, will, I will actually make a comment and not necessarily Please ask do. a question. So um, we are middle income and, and uh, upper middle income, even two high income uh, islands. And um, we are therefore graduated and graduating from ODA. So we are on the frontier of those who will be asked or who have been asked already to mobilize our own funding for development. And one of the ways that we've been doing this with the handholding of the EU is through the tax uh, blacklisting process that I think many of you are aware about. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a few countries on and off the list. And part of the effort was to reform our tax systems to mobilize domestic resources okay. to help us partially fund our own development. Of course, the other area that ADIS um, has also ushered in is the inclusion in the of the private sector as mm -hmm. a, a major development partner, because as you mentioned, in the introduction, there's just not enough money to fund the development that, you know, we have to try to deliver by 2030. And uh, what I wanted to, to share really um, was a point you, you raised when you said not all countries are, are bankable. And I wanted to share the point that indeed there are some challenges and that not every developing or emerging mm -hmm. economy is able to uh, work uh, um, successfully within the new development fi finance framework. Uh, for instance, in the case of the Caribbean, you know we're, we're extremely vulnerable to exogenous shocks. Exactly. And in terms of attracting private finance for infrastructure, for instance, we're having a challenge because private sector financiers don't want to invest in a region whereby your infrastructure can be mm. destroyed before it's finished uh, the construction. So we're having difficulty attracting uh, private finance to partner in our infrastructure side. And obviously, because of our share size, being microstates, many of us, mm. we don't really have room to mobilize the domestic resources that, that Europe or whoever else expects us to get right. through taxes. So there are going to be some challenges as we try to fit in the new framework. And I just wanted to share that, you know, it's not... It's not going to be um, simple for all countries to access and participate in the new framework. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Shireen. Thank you very much for making that point. It is important. I also wanted to bring David from the One Campaign. So, uh, Augusta, could you come to the first row? Um, any other questions? Please ask them now. Brendan as well. So, please. Thanks, Sheila. Uh, my name is David McNair from the One Campaign. Just listening to the ambassador's <coughs> comment, it made me think about... Um, the least developed countries and fragile and conflict-affected states. If you look at the projections on extreme poverty, extreme poverty will be concentrated in those locations, right. which are <clears throat> high risk, You know, just as the ambassador mentioned. If you look at the International Finance Corporation, most of its lending goes to middle-income countries. So mm -hmm. how do we mm -hmm. tackle that risk point? Is it, are there kind of regulatory changes? Is there capacity building? Is it accounting training for, for entrepreneurs? Those are the kind of things that I think if we want to tackle SDG 1, we really need to grapple with. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. There are also, I mean, I'm going to go to Brendan in a second, but there are also questions about transparency of all this, the standards that are used. I mean, it seems to be a bit, you know, all over the place. What are the real standards? Do we coordinate? And is the private sector really doing impactful things, or are we just still living uh, in a world where it hasn't really happened, but we're hoping, hoping it will happen? So please bring the microphone here. Thank, thank you, Brendan. Thank you. My name is Brandon, also from the One Campaign. I had a question um, related to David's point about uh, LECs and, for, and uh, financial inclusion and job creation, because I think we, we do see a trend where um, a lot of increase in finance uh, and growth uh, has been very stable for uh, GDPs and producing a lot of benefits benefits for, for macroeconomic growth, but we haven't really seen a lot of translation into actual job creation, especially on the ground, um, you know, notwithstanding the informal economy. So I'm just curious to know if you've done uh, any evaluation or if there's a lot of evidence on what types of specific hmm. uh, development finance mechanisms or, or, or flows are going to close that gap and, and produce some of those uh, jobs um, that we're not necessarily seeing uh, from, from macroeconomic GDP growth. And, and would you say, Brendan, that that's one of the things you'd ask for, more evaluation of the impact? Is that, is that the kind of thing that we should be focusing on so, now rather than just thinking creatively? Yeah, I think, I think it, um, the development finance sphere is maybe um, uh, at a risk of replicating a social market economy that we have currently in the West that hasn't mm -hmm. been particularly effective at redistributing wealth. And uh, if we take that model um, and kind of bring it to developing countries without evaluating some of those risks, uh, we might not... Uh, end up achieving the SDGs, we might end up creating a lot of wealth, but not actually achieving growth for the people who need it most at the bottom, especially people in LDCs. So the inequality issue, I think, is, is important. Happy to take one final point. So I see, yeah, forget your name, excuse me. I know you very well, of course, please. Thank you. Uh, Nico Keppens from DEFCO, but talking on my own behalf. Um, I hear a lot about big uh, investments, big projects, and smaller projects, and both being needed. But isn't that asking for a more... Um, review of the task division. Um, shouldn't it be better that big institutions like, in, for instance, EIB or the Commission, that they focus on the big projects and that we leave and trust NGOs more to do the smaller projects? This is also linked to accountability on, on control. Um, if, we have, if we do have to, to, to start up micro-projects, we don't have the resources to control them. So that we have to leave to, to the smaller institutions like NGOs. So there is, a, I think, a need for a new division of labor. Okay, good, good point. Uh, so uh, let's go in reverse, uh, reverse order. But actually, no, let's start with you, uh, Thomas, because a number of uh, questions were addressed to you. Please feel free to uh, answer the questions you feel most expert on. Uh, it's, all, it's on, it's on, okay. just, just go for it. Um, wonderful, there were so many questions. Um, if you allow me, I would like to focus on two questions Please. from yeah. Ms. Mr. Matthews, was it? No, sorry, what was your name? I forgot. Fouquet, <laughs> I'm very sorry. It's okay. I'm very sorry about the African financial sector. Yeah. And the second question is about uh, the variety of projects yeah. that need to be financed. Please. African financial sector, the way you described it, I like to call it reverse Robin Hood. What did Robin Hood do? He collected the money from the rich and gave it to the poor. What does the African financial sector often do? He collects savings from the poor and gives it as cheap loans to the rich. Hmm. Okay. Of course, that's not the idea of a financial sector. And uh, there is no one-size-fits-all solution because every 
the financial sector. Every African country is different. What I can share with you is my experience from, it's not an African country, but the same case, Myanmar. I was heading an SME finance project for four years in Myanmar, mm -hmm. and uh, we were facing the same challenges. What we did was on the one side that we worked on the regulatory level with the central bank and simply helped reducing certain barriers as collateralized lending, as lending interest rate caps and the like. And furthermore, we worked very closely with the banking sector directly, capacity development and also working on a pilot case with three individual banks. As a result, after those four years, three years, and we, um, the SME loan portfolio of those three banks we supported um, grow by a factor of 14. Mm -hmm. So we leveraged with uh, just a couple of million, really like three, four million euro, we leveraged around 500 million euro in additional lending to more than 40,000 SME. This worked very well in Myanmar. Different approaches might apply to different countries. Um, the second aspect, projects are so different. I fully agree. Um, for example, uh, I, I, I want to give you two examples. Example number one. Um, we just set up, on behalf of the German government, uh, a wonderful mechanism to leverage remittances into um, uh, foundings, existences, and uh, uh, small, smallest and small businesses in Africa. Um, idea behind that is um, remittances just from Europe to Africa exceed official ODA to Africa. Mm -hmm. um, but 80% of those remittances end up in consumptive ways, mm -hmm. which is fair enough, but maybe we can tap into that mm -hmm. and leverage into more investive use. So what we are trying to do as German government is to really say, via this online platform, we can monitor investments from remittance um, senders into smallest and small businesses in Africa. And if these remittances are used for the investive purposes, we will double it from public funds. Mm. So this is very small projects, very or ra uh, la uh, rather larger scale projects. I would like to um, mention a joint project from the EIB, European Investment Bank and GIZ, funded by the German Ministry of Environment. It's called Felicity, Financing Energy for Low Carbon Investments. And here um, we really support as GIZ and EIB um, uh, to um, create urban projects with, uh, which reduce greenhouse gases. Um, we set up a a preparation facility mm -hmm. for such projects, um, help structuring um, relevant projects and then link them to existing um, uh, EU funding mechanisms especially, but also to private investors. Um, main projects are at the moment in countries like Brasilia, Mexico and China and main focus is for example public transportation, waste and waste treatment, energy, um, energy efficiency in public uh, mm -hmm. buildings. So yes, those projects are very, very diverse and there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Mm -hmm. Okay, Th Thomas, thank you for your uh, insights also on your personal experience. Beatrice, I'll give you the floor. No, I'm going to go in this yeah. order. Thank no, you. I would, um, <laughs> you have your thank opportunity. You I would build on that. Um, I, I fully agree one size doesn't um, fit all. 
Um, and I think to, to address the um, question about you know, large infrastructure projects, etc., I think the area of, of finance we're talking about, of sustainable finance, it's about building those large infrastructure projects, but whilst at the same time thinking about the potential negative externalities or when you're building the bridge or the large infrastructure with a development perspective, taking a whole you know, systemic approach as to what's going around it. Um, to address your the gentleman's um, question on um, job creation um, and um, I, I fully agree with you that if we um, adopt the same um, mindsets as we have so far in, in finance or in, in economic growth uh, to, um, to the SDG challenges, um, we risk um, forgetting a lot of people, um, a lot of issues um, on the way. We were discussing that actually before the panel, that so much investment is so focused on only a couple um, of the SDGs and not on the whole um, 17. Um, actually, um, these instruments I was talking about who are indeed about the smaller projects. So we've been talking about the very big stuff and the smaller grassroots ones very often focus on employment and financial inclusion. So um, I often say economic inclusion is, is an important first step to financial inclusion. Uh, there's a lot of investment going on currently in financial inclusion through mobile wallets and all the um, you know, um, things that technology enable. But obviously, if you don't have the first step of being self-resilient, of being able to have a decent livelihood, um, somehow, I mean, it's great to have a mobile wallet, but it's, it's probably better to have first um, a job. So um, that, those, that this area of blended finance, that's where uh, you help address maybe more of the social or people's issues rather than the large scale uh, climate, um, etc. And, and the good news is that these blended finance um, instruments are starting to be used in fragile contexts. Um, we're, we're working on one for, for Syrian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon, urban and peri-urban areas of, um, of Jordan and Lebanon. I mean, that's pretty fragile. Um, it can glow up at any time. And who are you working with there, though? There, we, we actually, the idea is to fund um, NGOs who have been operating there for, for, for a long time with very good results. And then we bring private investors, um, institutions, um, family offices um, to, to the table, along with um, donors which, um, who will be um, uh, public but also private. Um, and um, potentially also, um, which we're really happy about, bringing in um, some actors of Islamic finance. Um, we're talking about um, you know, blending and collaborating. Um, the um, Islamic finance has at the heart of it, as, as you may know, the, the notion of doing good. And, and so if you leverage that philosophy with other of our philosophies, right. you can get to something, um, hopefully, with bigger impact. Right. But is this, sorry, I'm just very curious myself, is this outside the official reconstruction process or whatever? Yeah, these are, these, are, these are fully private um, okay. programs um, where public, um, you know, so governments or multilaterals can, right. of course, participate. Now, having said that, and that's a very important point, you, own, you can only work... Um, within a context, right? So you fully respect, of mm. course, it's within the Jordan Compact, oh, yeah. um, etc. Um, you do it in agreement with the local with government. The local, you, yeah. you can never, you don't... Uh, impose. Okay, thank you very much. Don't Kai? impose, no. Thank you very much. Kai? Yeah, thanks. Um, on question, small projects versus big projects, we're actually covering both. Um, small projects uh, essentially means um, pushing local banking partners uh, into serving... 
uh, customer groups that are not that are underserved. Um, I mean, we're not directly, we're just not able to directly lend to very small uh, companies. But in fact, the uh, first guarantee agreement uh, under the guarantee facility I mentioned that we signed last uh, December mm -hmm. was with the Dutch development bank FMO. And what they will do there is um, is to use a very clever uh, guarantee structure to push um, local banks into serving uh, migrants, women entrepreneurs, and uh, young uh, people. So in many countries, clearly underserved uh, groups. So so it does work, but it it works in an indirect way, uh, reaching reaching these small um, smaller projects and smaller enterprises, trying to reverse the reverse Robin Hood a little bit. Um, LDCs and fragile countries. Uh, Again, looking at uh, my shop, uh, but also a recent trend coming from the uh, European Parliament and stakeholders is to push us uh, very much into LDCs and uh, fragile countries. Um, our guarantee becomes very, very attractive and very cheap uh, when you go to LDCs, in particular to fragile countries, comes almost commercial, commercially priced in uh, middle-income countries. So there's a very strong um, push uh, into, into these markets. Uh, of course, it's often difficult to find private investors and uh, private counterparts in, in the most difficult markets. But the, uh, the push is there, and in my view, it's great because it, um, at least I take it as a, as a mandate to try some uh, really novel and uh, also risky stuff, risky in the sense that some of it will work out, some of it will not um, work out. Um, and I think it would be a fine outcome, I mean, not for everything to fail, but um, mm, uh, if we walk away uh, from some projects and mm. some, some guarantees, we find out it doesn't work, mm. that would be a very, very fine uh, lesson. In that sense, evaluation will be extremely important, and I'm a big fan of evaluation. So, uh, Finally, middle-income countries, um, the, the, well, the colleague actually made an interesting observation that they... Um, for this, what we're doing right now, they're a little bit, little bit less the focus than, than LDCs. Uh, I would argue that a lot of these private sector instruments actually would work very well in, in middle-income countries and would uh, free uh, colleagues from EIB, for example, to focus their capacity more on the, on the more difficult markets and, uh, you know, with a bit of guarantee assistance, uh, perhaps leave the middle-income countries more to, uh, to private investors, actually. But what if, what, what if these middle-income countries are fragile from the climatic point of view? which is the case in the Eastern Caribbean. Well, this uh, national, national, um, the, the natural disaster risk is actually a great risk that we could, co could cover with the kind of guarantee uh -huh. that, that we're setting up right now. Uh, I mean, that would be exactly the kind of setting uh, where you could have an insurance scheme that we um, subsidize perhaps in the beginning a little bit, mm -hmm. um, subsidize to make it more viable, but also subsidize for, um, for people to... Uh, learn about the risks, the actual risks, uh, and, and then cover exactly those risks. I, I think it would be a great setting uh, to, to do that. Can I, can I just ask you one thing? There, there is a thing that I think perhaps uh, Siegfried Leffler from GIZ also knows about, the International Development Finance Club, which has been described as the club no one really hears of. And it's, this has got all kinds of national banks, the China Bank, the India Bank, Turkish banks. And these are all banks that are working domestically, but also now sort of trying to get into uh, markets abroad. And this is a club that's been, you know, I think GIZ is a member, IFD is a member. Have you ever heard of this or worked with them or No. The club, frankly, not as most of the members you mentioned, yeah. yes, but not not as a <laughs> <laughs> but not as a coherent uh, kind of entity. Okay, that's something. No, no, no. But I mean, it's not just banks. It's it's all kinds of donors and organizations working together. Okay, we'll explore this further and come back on this issue. Okay, Kai, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Lubna.
Um, so I was wondering how best to address the questions, and I thought maybe I'll just uh, tell a story that maybe addresses two or three and reconfirms what our colleague um, was mentioning earlier, the need for sort of division of labor. Um, and I would go beyond just saying NGOs. I would also, as I said earlier, all the stakeholders, and particularly the stakeholders who are being affected. So in this case, as uh, when we talk about youth unemployment, it's the youth themselves. When we talk about um, financial inclusion, the children themselves. So media, academia, you name it. Anyone, everyone has a uh, role to play, including actually what we call accelerators or and sort of champions. So these could also be sort of celebrity figures. It's 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 really about creating this movement. So let me explain what I mean. Um, so financial inclusion, you mentioned it. It's, it's, a, it's a big problem. And actually, it is exactly an example of what I was saying about the system needing to be well and in order so that investments like these can also thrive, right? So, you know, if you talk about microfinance or any sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, intervention like that, well, yeah, that's not going to work if the people are, who are supposed to be receiving it don't receive it. So financial inclusion was a very important topic for us, along with financial education, because we feel like, well, if you're going to drive the car you need to also have some driving lessons, right? So financial education, financial inclusion go hand in hand. And we also talk about social education because it's also about knowing your rights, your choices, and so on. Um, so when we, when we started out, as I mentioned, not a lot of people knew or, or were very interested in this topic. There's no, there's no money in it as well. So children's bank accounts are a guaranteed yeah. loss. So um, we we worked with with by, uh, we wanted to put it on the global agenda. So we worked with the um, with EU bodies. We worked with uh, the UN bodies. We worked with the G20. We worked with all types of sort of global institutions um, to really put this on the agenda. Uh, we, the OECD um, uh, and also uh, well many others, and it worked. Okay. So so and and the the crux here is that it was in their own policies in which it was changed. Right. Um, and then we sort of then went to the country level. So we organized things like I mentioned earlier, Global Money Week. Okay, Global Money Week is where we, whereby we say, okay, you, all countries are welcome, all institutions are welcome to create their own financial inclusion awareness events or financial education awareness events. This could be workshops, it could be children in the stock exchange, it could be children visiting a bank, and then ideally this is what then launches into actual concrete actions, which is the opening of bank accounts, which is actually our ultimate goal of putting financial inclusion into the school curriculum, right? Um, Côte d'Ivoire, they organized their own Global Money Week. Yeah. Uh, we went to the Ministry of Education. They said, oh, I mean, interesting. We've been hearing on the global agenda that this is something that, you know, we, we kind of believe in it. We weren't sure how to take action. I said, okay, well, here's some example from your neighbors. Here's some example from the West. Here's some examples from all over. Um, come to our summit. Come learn uh, from the others. And why don't you organize your own glo uh, Global Money Week? That's a nice, easy thing to do, right? So they did, and they found other stakeholders in the country that were working on this, and maybe they, who weren't working on this but wanted to be working. So what essentially happened was there was an alliance in the country that hadn't existed before. So they organized the Global Money Week, fun events, everyone's happy, adults love it more than the kids these days, I'll tell you. Okay, now, sort of four or five years later, as we continue to work with them sharing best practices, they won one of the awards that we give, because that's also another motivator, yeah. and that's the role of the honest broker. Um, we, gave award, we give awards to countries that are exceptional. Cote d'Ivoire won. Uh, they were extremely happy. They sent their deputy, and they said, you know, this, this is real now, <laughs> right? And um, they recently launched their financial inclusion initiative. Okay. Now, what they're working on is on the implementation, and this now is the next step, and we will support them. Actually, we don't even need to support them because there are other players who can support mm -hmm. them. Now, we bring other players in, or we connect them with other countries that do that. Um, how much did we give Cote d'Ivoire? Not a single cent, okay? And one of the things that they're doing now is um, 
uh, uh, to, to be very tangible is what we call a school bank, right? So they are working with a bank um, to sort of provide fin um, um, bank accounts for young people in schools. They will pilot it. They will see how it goes. And if it works, then the government will endorse it and it will roll out with other banks. Um, and we've seen examples of this and we've seen different models of that. I won't go into all of that. But all I wanted to say is hopefully this answers you know, how we're tackling a sort of uh, financial inclusion, which is a big problem at a systemic level, in order for such investments also to sort of be maximized. Um, and, and really to say that it's very, very, very important that it is a multi-stakeholder approach and that it is owned by the, the country. We know that if we disappear, which we plan to do um, on, in this sphere anyway, the Cote d'Ivoire will go on. Yeah, sustainability of the project and... and uh Great. Thank you very much, Lubna, for those insights. Yes, Richard. What I might do, because I think most of the questions have been answered by, um, by my colleagues here. Maybe I, if you don't mind, I will just give you a view as to looking forward and yep. some of the trends that we see coming. And, 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 uh, and what we see, from, from, at least from the EIB side. I think the first area is, is leapfrogging technology. This is, we cannot, I think it was Brendan maybe who, who mentioned this idea of that in, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia, having the same model that has grown up in the Western world, is, it's not going to work. Yeah. So backing those leapfrogging technologies, mm. acknowledging that they're there and providing support for that, that works best on the ground, that, that's, that's the way that we're going to have to move. Mm -hmm. Second point I see is supporting urban infrastructure. As I mentioned before, this move to the cities, this global move to the cities is, is, is going to really impact us over the next 25 years. So providing sanitation, providing water, providing power, providing basic infrastructure services and jobs in big cities will be a key focus from policy focus for, for banks like EIB. Third point is LDCs that, that Kai and, and, and the question that was from, from David, I think, Absolutely. Also, with scarce public resource that we have on our side, we've got to be looking to get the best bang for the buck, mm -hmm. for our buck, right? Mm -hmm. And the developmental impact of working in LDCs is huge. And that is mm. going to be a focus for people like us who have maybe been more comfortable in working in, in, in easier countries. Maybe we're going to have to start working in a different place. Mm -hmm. That's the big third point. And the fourth point, we talked about evaluation. Absolutely. But what that must mean is, is we need to be quicker mm. and more agile in our response. And that's incumbent, I think, on everybody on our side. That, for me, is a, as a, as a kind of a, a round-up point. We have to be better at responding more quickly to ever-changing trends. Mm. Thank you very much indeed. Richard, you've taken my task off uh, my hand, so how, how can I compete with that? You've absolutely said what's, what was necessary. So I just wanted to say, uh, I started off by saying this is an enormous task and it's surreal, uh, it's mind-boggling, and having heard you, all of you, uh, I think perhaps we all agree that it is attainable. But not just like this, obviously, um, require creativity. We've talked about the need to have open minds, leapfrogging uh, technology. We need to have courage to do things that we haven't done before. And uh, I think all of you have stressed, and I think this is really, really crucial, is collaboration, to learn to work together. And if you read our, our publication, you'll see just how difficult it is to match different uh, cultures 
private sector cultures, official cultures. It's not that easy. Uh, but talking about teamwork, this event has also been about teamwork. So not just our panelists who've been brilliant. Uh, thank you very much for all your insights, all of you who've really asked the questions on the agenda, and then the team at Friends of Europe. So I want to thank Sarah, Sarah Benz, Augusta. Thank you very much. I want to thank Sarah Collins also. She'll be writing the event report. And then what we're all going to do together as a team is draw up some recommendations, some conclusions to take this conversation forward. Because it's not the end of the story, obviously. Got another many years to go. And we need to see progress. So we will try and match uh, what's been done and what's not been done, the do's and the don'ts and the must-do's in, 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 the, in the years ahead, in the months ahead. So once again, thank you all very, very much for being here. And I look forward to seeing you again. In fact... We'll see you very soon because we're doing a, another panel inside, policy insight on educating girls. Uh, that, uh, Sarah, remind me, on the 27th of February. So I hope to see all of you there. It's going to be a very important issue, taking this conversation forward. So once again, yes. <clears throat> <clears throat>